You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. Dude, I can't believe we got Mike Meharry on the show. Do you think he'll be mad if I call him Dirty Meharry? Phil, why would you give our first big guest a stupid nickname? Do you think he'll get mad if I call him Santa? Phil, cut it out. What about Wayne Gretzky? No, that won't do. Hmm. Okay, I've got it. Meharriet Tubman. I have a crazy idea. I'm going to call him Mike. Uh, that's his name. And I don't think I don't think you're close enough to him where you get to give him crazy nicknames yet. Um, in fact, I think I think you, Phil, you should call him Mr. Meharry. Well, Tubbs of Fun, you don't speak for him. And you know what? We have a real shot of walking out of this being new best friends and internet famous. Uh, hey, hey, uh, hello, I'm here. You know, I can hear you. Damn it, Phil. Wayne oh. Gretzky, really? I'm a goalie. <laughs> That's My so bad. lame. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. Let's like, oh, let's pick a hockey player. Only, only know one. So we'll that's say Wayne Gretzky. That is exactly <laughs> what happened. That's the only person I know. <laughs> Welcome to Make Liberty Great Again, the best damn liberty podcast that you've never heard of. Phil and I will be your guides as we peer into the ridiculous reality of our society and our government. Let's get to it. Thank you for tuning in today to Make Liberty Great Again, definitely not Santa edition. I'm your host, Cam Harless, and with me as always is my lovely co-host, Phil Padilla. And boy, do we have a special episode for you all today. This is our third interview episode, and we're very, very excited about it. Because it isn't Ryan Burgett. <laughs> exactly. Uh, hi, Mike. Sorry again about all the silliness. Uh, Cam put me up to it, so just blame him. So and the Santa thing, that really did annoy you. You know, I, I had the big beard. Well, not really that big a beard, but it was kind of big. I was like going toward the big beard, and then people started calling me Santa Claus. I was like, no, no this ain't happening. I shaved that crap off. There was a couple of people called me Lysander Spooner. That was kind of cool. I kind of liked that vibe, but most people, it was Santa, and I'm, I'm, I was like, no, I'm not going. And then uh, – uh, I don't know if y'all know Avens. She took a picture of me over at the uh, Libertarian Convention thing in New Orleans. It was a really, really good picture, but I looked like an old homeless dude. So. <laughs> <laughs> Emphasis on old. Well, I'd like. Let's just say you sound much younger than you look. So respect there. <laughs> <laughs> Great. First off, thanks for coming in and dealing, you know, with our inanity. Um, as you may or may not know. Uh, we do these chats occasionally in addition to our regular episodes, and uh, we shoot for more of a conversational style rather than a straight interview because I've heard a lot of straight interviews, and I prefer the gay ones. No, well, this isn't, this isn't going to work then because I only do straight interviews. <laughs> okay, okay, good. Because <laughs> uh, we we, we, we're, we're not prepared for that, so it should be okay, fun. Okay, good. <laughs> so, I thought yeah, we I'm negotiated this... with his agent to do a, a, a not straight interview. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm just hoping this goes in some fun directions. Um, but we wanted to warm you up with some uh, a few basic questions, get you started. So here we go. Um, what's your favorite color and why? What is my favorite color and why? Yeah. Do I have to have a reason? I mean, doesn't I mean, everybody. It, it my, helps. <laughs> my favorite color is blue because it's the best color. Duh. It's, I, that's, that's my favorite color and, and that's my reason too. Same. Same for me. Yeah. 
Now, some people might say, oh, he's from Kentucky, so he likes blue because of the Kentucky Wildcats, and that's not true. Yeah, it's the Kentucky bluegrass. Which is another misnomer. I've lived in this stupid state for pretty much about half of my life. I've never seen any freaking bluegrass. It's not a thing. Uh, where, Where are you from originally, if not Kentucky? Well, I'm, I, so I was born here mm-hmm. and I grew up here. And then when I graduated from college the first time, which was in 1992 to date me, I moved to Florida. <laughs> so most of my adult life, like my 20s and 30s and up to about 40, I lived in Florida. Okay. And then I came back to Kentucky in 2008 and uh, that's where I am now, but hopefully back to Florida soon. My wife's actually trying to get me to move to Florida, so... Well, come on, it'll be party. <laughs> All right, so here's your, here's our second warm-up question. Who would win in a fight, Mozart or Beethoven? Mozart would probably win because Beethoven would never hear it coming. <laughs> excellent, excellent reasoning. <laughs> that's, a, right. that's the best I've got. <laughs> All right, this is Isn't our that last crazy, question, though, Mike. that Beethoven was deaf? I mean, think about that for a second. Think of the music. Yeah, it's crazy. Music. In, in, in that's amazing it must have heightened his orchestrating skills alright okay so here's one that's kind of unorthodox as if our other ones weren't already what words would you say as a kid that you miss saying nowadays due to PC culture <laughs> oh wow there were probably a lot of words because I grew up in the <laughs> 70s and 80s so it was pretty much no holds barred oh that sounds awesome yeah, I mean, and I had a potty mouth too. That's that's a, a dirty little secret that my mom never really knew. So, like, if she's listening to this podcast, the cat's out of the bag. But um, <laughs> she's not. I I won't tell her. Um, we we made we made a lot of gay jokes. I think the expression that was oft used was that that's queer. That's so queer. Do you remember the game Smear the Queer? Oh yeah, absolutely. I remember that. Yeah, we played that. That, that would not go over well today. we played we played touch football in the street so we're like we did the whole thing where uh you know somebody had to watch and they yell car everybody run out of the street (laughs) (laughs) childhood was so different then now it's like we don't let kids out of the house because we're scared but that's (laughs) all right I, i think i think we're warmed up um yeah thanks for having some fun so what i wanted to do i mean We've said your name, but we haven't really introduced you properly yet, so I wanted to, to go ahead and do that. Uh, today we've got Mike Meharry on, um, and honestly, I was I was thinking about this before we did this, and I was like, I am not sure I could ever hope to remember everything that you do. I, I honestly think you're, uh, I think you're busier than Tom Woods, but I'm going to try to name all the things that you do off the top of my head. All right. Okay. You're the communications director at the 10th Amendment Center. You do a fair amount of live streams and videos. Mm-hmm. And I, you're like the the guy that's on every podcast. Apparently, um, there's thoughts from my hairy head, <laughs> sports ball, Godarchy, and Schiff Gold's Friday Gold Wrap. Am I missing anything? Nope. Those are the those are the things that I do. Of course, I, I so my my gig where I make money and actually pay my bills is uh, is working for Schiff Gold. So I actually do their website. Okay. And so all of the, the content on shiftgold.com slash news is written by me, which a lot of it's just repackaging Peter's videos and stuff. But 
So yeah, that's that's my uh, that's my paying gig. And then the Tenth Amendment Center is the gig that doesn't pay as well, but probably is my where my heart is. I gotcha. Oh, fun fact though, when we were doing the first version of this podcast with with Kim. Uh, she came to me and she said, and I, I feel like we had an awkward conversation about this because she came to me and she said, Hey, we should interview Mike Meharry. And like immediately I was like, yes, I like Mike. Let's talk. Let's talk to Mike. And then I, I think I asked her something like, what would we talk to him about? And she goes, well, I mean, we could talk about the 10th amendment. We could talk about gold. And I'm like, does he have a podcast? And she and she goes, I think he has a couple. <laughs> I I legitimately only knew you as a person and was totally down to have you on <laughs> on the show just well, for that. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I just I, I thought it was because she was like, <laughs> Do you know who he is? And I was like, He's Mike, who I talk to on Facebook. <laughs> right. Yeah. One of so, the faceless Facebook friends. Actually my picture's <laughs> on my Facebook now, but <laughs> because I, because I, but that was so funny to me because she was like you really didn't know who he was I was like I just knew him as a person so I guess that's I guess that's good I guess that's good yeah yeah so question that I'm, I'm sure you've asked been asked before on a libertarian podcast um, what was your um, original political ideology what flavor statist were you. Oh, I was uh, I was a right wing uh, Christian right kind of guy. Uh, Moral majority. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, those the the televangelist always annoyed me as a Christian, so I wasn't really like the Jerry Falwell group. But that was my orientation. I I wanted to I wanted the government to tell everybody how they should live and you know we shouldn't have those kids out there smoking weed and and uh law and order and all that kind of things and of course rush limbaugh was a big uh, a big influence like i started listening to rush limbaugh in the first gulf war so uh I, i'm a very now repentant warmonger from <laughs> from way back oh i am too yeah not quite as far back, but well, yeah, but but yeah, that was that was pretty much me. I was I was a Republican. The one thing that was always pretty consistent with me, and in, in what was kind of my window into the liberty movement, is I always had this belief in the concept of, of quote unquote limited government. Um, I, I didn't understand at the time that Republicans really didn't believe in limited government, but they said they did. So I was the limited government guy. And uh, that's kind of what got me involved in the 10th Amendment Center. Of course, little did I know that that was a bunch of crazy libertarians and not, <laughs> not uh, right-wing conservatives. But so, so yeah, that was, that was, I was the right-wing statist and uh, took, took me a while to, to come out of that. But, and so it was the t it was the Tenth Amendment Center and what Michael Bolden that moved you in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. So I I was uh, um, I got politically involved during the Tea Party, uh, like a lot of people. I was concerned about Obama and you know the potential for government health care. Got that anyway. Um, <laughs> and you know I got caught up in that whole Tea Party thing and and went to some rallies here in town and you know the Tea Party was an interesting thing because it wasn't especially early on, it wasn't homogeneous. Like I think it got co-opted by the Republicans and the oh, it definitely did. conservatives. Uh, but here in Lexington, there were a lot of Ron Paul people 
in, in the Tea Party movement. So I got to know some people that at the time I didn't realize that they were as radical as, as I now know that they are. Um, but I just felt like, you know, at that point, my kids were starting to get into school age and, you know, you start thinking about their future. And it was one of those deals where like, you know, I probably ought to do something more than hold a sign in the rain and vote. And so I started looking for ways to get involved and I had just finished a journalism degree and, and I've always enjoyed writing. And so I was kind of looking for a place I could plug in and do some writing and uh, over there at the 10th Amendment Center, they'll pretty much take anybody. So <laughs> uh, I, I filled out the volunteer form and, and uh, the next thing I knew I was the national communications director. And, uh, and, and from there it was kind of uh, uh, a whirlwind experience. I think, you know, what was pretty cool was that the people that I was surrounded with, especially early on, we were doing these um, nullify now uh, events that were live events. And we did one in Philadelphia. We did one down in Austin, Texas, Jacksonville, Florida, just various places. And it was like a whole day of nullification and constitution. And Tom Woods was the keynote speaker at a lot of those events. So I got to know Tom and, you know, you, you start absorbing stuff by osmosis. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you my favorite uh, early days of my trek into libertarianism or little L libertarianism. Let's be clear. Um, <clears throat> I've told this on a couple other podcasts, but I think it's funny. So I had been with the 10th amendment center, not a year. So I was still full fledged neocon mode, especially in terms of foreign policy. And we were down in Austin, Texas, and Bolden is like, okay, we're going to go uh, to, I don't even remember what we were going to, but some event. And we, we got to pick up this dude uh, named Scott Horton. <laughs> I was like, all right, cool. That's, you know. So, you know, picture this. I'm sitting in the back seat of this car. Bolden's in the front seat. Uh, I don't remember who was driving. And, and Horton gets in the back seat next to me and immediately launches into some tirade about who knows what. And the next thing I know, he's, he's like almost yelling at the top of his lungs, the state, the state. I'm like, what in the world have I gotten myself into? These people are absolutely nuts and insane. And then he took me to an anti-war rally. So, um, <laughs> so that was fun. And it's, you know, it's funny because Scott just totally freaked me out. I wasn't, I wasn't quite ready for Scott at that point, but. You know, now I count him among my friends. So, Well, speaking of anti-war, when you were a filthy statist, where were you on foreign policy? Were you a war hawk or were you kind of an isolationist? No, I was a, I was a total war hawk. Ah. Pretty little secret about Mike Meharry that I'm not sure that, that there aren't still traces of this out in the internet because, you know, the internet saves everything. But for a while, I actually did a blog that was basically a repost of uh, military press releases. So, oh wow, yeah, that's that's nasty. So, yeah, I was in, in you know, just background wise, my, my grandfather was career army, and I always he was still is somebody that I greatly respect. Um, he's passed away now, but so you know, very strong military background. He went in to the military at the beginning of World War II and stayed in until the end of Vietnam, and so. I was always as a little kid, just fascinated with military stuff. I, I still am, to be honest, like military aircraft and all that kind of stuff. I just, it fascinates me. Um, so yeah, I was pretty much, you know, we gotta, we gotta get them over there so they don't get us over here. And, 
<laughs> and I bought all that all of that BS. Our freedoms are in a cave in Afghanistan. Yes, they are, and and, and we need to wrangle them out of there. And and you know it's 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 sad, but like Gulf War One, I, I remember I I just gotten finished with college, and I remember sitting in my she was my girlfriend at the time. She was my first, ended up being my first wife. I remember sitting in her apartment on the couch, like having snacks and stuff like this was some kind of, uh, you know, like game of Thrones. You were going to go watch what's going on in the war today. Yeah. Didn't, didn't they have the wars version of baseball cards? I've heard someone say that it may be a joke because I was too young. No, they did. They, what, what they did, or was that after the, was that the second war? They did have the playing cards where they had the most wanted. That was after 9-11, I think. Oh, the VIP <laughs> ones, the high, the high value targets. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Um, and, and I remember, you know, the, what's scary is you realize in retrospect, once you take that, that pill and you start to see the reality you realize how effective propaganda is. Oh yeah. Now you can see it. Now it's like, Oh God, here we go. You know, but, but I remember very specifically Gulf war one or yeah, Gulf war one. The big thing that they told us was that the Iraqis were throwing babies out of incubators. Right. I remember that. That was the, that was the big thing. And we're like, Oh my God, well, we got to kill all these bastards because they're throwing babies out of incubators. Who does that? You know? And, and meanwhile, we're mowing down people on a road. And of course that was all BS. It's always BS, but you know, and, and now, so the, the version now is, oh, they gas their own people or, you know, who knows what it is that the Iranians are going to do that's, that's going to be horrible, that's going to outrage everybody to, to support that war. But, well, they already put their country way too close to our military bases, so they're off, they're off to a bad start. Those bastards. I mean, <laughs> I, I can't believe they don't, aren't more appreciative of the coup in 1954 where we, you know, overthrew their government and started this whole chain of events. You know, I mean, we go in and help them. We fix their government. They should be grateful, right? I mean, we like so. people meddling in our election. Oh, wait. <laughs> they just need a couple more Starbucks over there and they'll be good. Absolutely. <laughs> so you kind of, you know, got into it with your background and kind of just being, you know, foisted into the 10th Amendment Center. But what originally got you interested in the Constitution? Was it your involvement with the 10th Amendment Center or did you have an interest in it before then? Yeah, I, I had an I mean, I've always been kind of a... Uh, for lack of a better term, a history nerd. Um, so I, I enjoy all aspects of, of history. Just, I find it fascinating. And, mm -hmm. and like I said, there was this sense, and I was raised in that conservative environment where limited government is a good thing. And I was semi-literate enough about the Constitution to know that there were some things in there that, purported to make our system limited government. And, and I understood the concept of the 10th Amendment, although not nearly as, as fully as I ended up. And, and so that was kind of the end. You know, it's like, okay, we need limited government. We've got this Barack Obama fella in here, and he's doing all of these horrible things. And, and so we need him to follow the Constitution. And so that was kind of the end. And then when I actually started working with the 10th Amendment Center and I learned about this idea of nullification, which I still think is one of the coolest things ever in the history of, the, of, of politics. And I realized what the Constitution was actually purported to mean and how far and how quickly it drifted away from that. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, 
I think even if you're a, a hardcore anarchist, you know, and you you hold the Lysander Spooner view that the whole thing is useless, uh, I still think it's good for uh, anybody who is interested in politics at all to understand what the Constitution actually was supposed to do. If if for no other reason, it's a good example of how this thing called government is always going to grow and expand and its tentacles are going to overreach whatever quote-unquote limits we try to put around it. And the Constitution is a great example of that. So what would you say uh, was, I know you didn't take the whole bottle, but what would you say was the red pill that took you from minarchist or constitutionalist to straight up anarchist? Well, you know, it was was kind of a progressive thing and it's, I don't really... I do have a moment that I can tell you when I finally let go of that foreign policy stuff. That was the last thing that I really struggled with, but it was really kind of a gradual progression. I think the first thing was the ugly reality that Republicans are not limited government, (laughs) you know, because that was always, that was, I was in that two party left, right mindset. And so the Republicans were limited government and the Democrats were big government. And after about a year with the 10th Amendment Center, I was like, all of these people are big government. These Republicans don't mean it either. And and that's kind of the irony of the 10th Amendment Center. That's really why it was created. Michael Bolden founded it uh, after 9-11 when Bush was president, basically to kind of stick a finger in the eye of the conservatives and say, look, you don't really respect this thing that you swear that you respect. So that was when the political scale started to fall away, and, and, and I started to realize that they're all full of crap. Um, the thing that that I think was the the final turning point, and you know, just being around people like Woods, then you start reading things from the Mises Institute, and then you know, the next thing you know, you're starting to read Rothbard, and you know, it's so you kind of start going down that rabbit hole. And uh, I, I remember specifically though a speech that Tom did, and uh, he was talking about foreign policy, and um, he said that basically the same people that are running the domestic policy that you hate are also running the foreign policy that you love. And I was like, oh. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, that seems, that seems rather common sense, but it really – the way he put it kind of cut through that. And I was like, oh, crap. These people suck at everything. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't have them. <laughs> and uh, – and yeah, so then it was like, and, and then one day I was like, holy shit, I'm an anarchist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, and because because my I'm I'm super boring. My my turn into libertarianism was a single Ron Paul video. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, I, you know, what's I mean, weird. People to always talk about Ron Paul stories and, and even like early on in in my foray into the liberty movement, I never really did. Like Ron Paul had almost no influence on me. Like mm-hmm. today, I really respect him, and it's cool looking back. And and he's one of the people. I don't I don't have a really big list of people that I'd like to meet, but I would like to meet Ron Paul. But everybody talks about there's there back in the Ron Paul days, and I'm like, yeah, I thought he was a nut. <laughs> <laughs> well, my thing was, um, because you know, I I, I was in like seven, sixth or seventh grade when nine eleven happened, and I thought there was going to be a you know World War three, and I was going right. to fight blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I, I lived in that area for a while. I was scared of Obama. So I voted for John McCain and hated myself shortly after. Yeah. But there was a video that Ron Paul did or not. It's not even the video. He did a speech 
uh, called, I think it's called Imagine. And he talks about, um, imagine if there was a Chinese occupying force in Texas mm-hmm. and how we would feel about that. And it was this, th- that was the moment. That was my red pill where like, wow, you know, it wasn't even so much like, oh, I have to look into libertarianism to see if I agree with this stuff. It was like, oh, wow, I found exactly what I've been thinking this whole time, but not understanding that that was even an option. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot, um, this whole idea of dehumanizing people. Oh, yeah. I wrote an article about it for the Godarchy site that, that got quite a bit of traction. Um, and it was based off of a C.S. Lewis quote that, that basically he was saying from a Christian perspective, if you recognize that everybody that's around you is potentially somebody that you'll be standing shoulder to shoulder in perfection in heaven, you treat people a lot different, you know, and a, a lot of the things that we see in politics that are gross and evil have at their root this, this dehumanization, this other, you know, we're going to make these people the other. And when you can really, that's one of the things that I want to do. That's one of my goals in, in my work, particularly over, over at Godarchy that's directed at a Christian audience. I want to hit them in the head hard enough that they pause and think, oh, these are real people over there that were drone striking and bombing their weddings. And, you know, no matter what you think about immigration, Mexicans are people, you know, they're not, they're not yeah. this glob of evil that are hoarding over the borders. And just, just to think of, of people as individuals and to treat them as individuals. And I mean, even, even going to, when you get into really contentious things like, uh, you know, identity politics and, and racial politics, uh, I get so frustrated the way everybody, you know, we want to put black people in a box and we use this term black people as if, every black person has the same views and ideas and every white person has privilege. And, you know, anybody that believes that bullshit's never been in Appalachia because I can show you a bunch of white people that ain't got no privilege. Oh yeah. You know, and, and both sides of it drives me crazy because it becomes this polarized, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going off the rails here and, and hijacking the conversation, but this is, no, you're good, man. It's been in my head, you know, when it comes to this this identity politics, especially when it comes to race, you've got you've got this big group of people on the left that want every damn thing to be racism. You know, everything's racist. I'm probably racist because I said racism. And then you've got on the other side, and I think it's almost a uh, 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 a slap back, you know, or a um, <laughs> blowback from from that. But you then you've got a bunch of people over here that think that oh, there's no racism. There is no racism, and I've had people tell me that there's no racism. Well, you know, I've, I've never seen understood it with that. my own eyes, and and so it's so frustrating to me. I'm here in the middle, just trying to live my life, and 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 both sides of this argument are making it really hard for me. Uh, it's but again, it's grouping people into into silos and attributing attitudes and beliefs and and behaviors to whole groups of people when everybody's an individual. I, I say this all the time uh, about my wife. She has much more in common with a poor white person in Appalachia having grown up in rural West Virginia than she does with a black kid that grew up in the inner city of Chicago. You know, that's, that's not her experience. Her experience as, as a black woman is in a rural setting. It's completely different. So to assume that she's going to have the same view and the same culture and the same ideas as somebody that was in the inner cities is absurd. Yeah. One, one thing I was actually talking to um, a friend of mine the other day 
and he was he was he was kind of commenting on the fact that um, I am more willing to make kind of off color jokes than I used to be, mm-hmm. and it's because I I thrive like it, it's just part of who I am. When something bad happens to me, I go to dark humor. Right. I go to gallows humor. That's just how I work, and it's how I've always worked. But he was like, you know, used to you wouldn't go to these places, and uh, he was. Like, I don't make a lot of racial jokes, but I'm not, like, when I'm hanging out with a black friend, I'm not opposed to, you know, he cracks on me for whiteness, I crack on him for blackness. And so it was, he was, he was saying, what happened? Because there was a change. And um, for me, when I was like 19 years old, I went on tour with a praise and worship band, of all things. And one of the guys, our sound guy was a black dude. And someone had made a joke and had said um, the N-word you know, with an A instead of the hard R. Right. And um, I I was this 18-year-old kid from Alabama, by the way, who had never heard it really used much at all. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I had this, like, look of, you know, white guilt, I guess. And he goes, right. and he goes, don't you dare be offended for me. Yeah. And I was like, what? And he was like, dude, it's not your place to be offended for me. And I was like, okay, I don't know how to deal with what you just said. Yeah, I'm right, so- what? <laughs> I'm sorry. And he goes, no, you have to realize um, what we're, wh- who we are, people, and we're individuals. Yep. And he said, you know, that guy right there was making a joke. I'm cool with that guy. You know, if he, if he started coming at me, that'd be a different thing, and I'd be right. more than happy to let you fight with me, <laughs> you know? And he was like, but... But I... He goes, one of the things that really threw me, he goes, he looks at me and he goes, I'm so... I'm so damn tired of these white people getting offended for me, fighting for me, and acting like I'm their favorite pet. And I was like, oh, what do I do with this? Yeah. You know, that's interesting because, because my wife has, has very similar attitude. Her, her phrase is, come down off that cross. You, know, <laughs> you, you didn't die for me. I don't need you to die for me. And, yeah. and it's particularly galling with the the upper middle class white leftists yes who have it it is so and they don't realize it but it is so condescending oh these poor little black people need my help i don't need your damn help yeah i, I didn't realize i didn't realize what was going either going on either i didn't realize i had white guilt until it, until a black person pointed it out yeah, right <laughs> and and you know again different people have different experiences we uh, so now we're really going off the rails, but I'll tell this story because I think it's interesting. Uh, we just had one of these episodes here in Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky, for those who don't know, uh, where a prominent personality stuck his foot in his mouth on air. Uh, he made a he made a joke about the princess's baby in relation to a monkey. Apparently, so apparently I think some, I heard about this. Yeah, well, so apparently some DJ. Whoops. Some DJ in England had made the joke, and he had gotten fired. So Lee, who is a comedian, is on this on a local show, and he didn't. He kind of flies by the seat of his pants, and he, so he they're making he's making jokes about this DJ, and he said something like, "Well, this is my favorite DJ now," because he thought it was funny. He didn't realize the context, and he was like me. I don't follow the royal family. I don't give two craps about the royal family. I had no idea that she had any African-American, or I guess she's be African-British or whatever, whatever she is. I had no idea. So he make, he's making this comment. She's actually from America. Okay. Well, so she would be African-American. My <laughs> wife hates that term too, by the way. My friend did too. He was like, you call me black. 
Yeah. He goes, she's like, I ain't never been to Africa. So anyway, yeah. So Lee, Lee stuck his foot in it. Of course he gets fired. And, and I, this stuff concerns me, not only because of the racial elements of it, but because I think there's an element of free speech where we're becoming so sensitive about words that you can't say anything. And I made a post about, about it on, on my Facebook page because I'm good friends with Lee. I know him. I know when he realized what happened, he was mortified. Mm-hmm. He, he, he is somebody that actually has, has done a lot for the black community here in Lexington. And of course, everybody was split and some people thought, well, he's got to be fired. And so anyway, I posted this on my Facebook page and made the mistake of making it public. Oh. And pretty soon I'm starting to see comments from all kinds of people that I don't know. <laughs> Uh-oh, that's never good. No, so I, I, I shut it down pretty fast, but I actually had a conversation with the guy and, um, you know, he, he was a, a few of the people, there, there was some black women on there that were basically just riding me down the road. This guy was a little bit more reasonable. And uh, so we, we had some back and forth and ended it civilly. And I started thinking about it. I actually messaged the guy and said, hey, w- would you be interested in having lunch? Uh, because I could tell that he had had some experiences that obviously had have affected his viewpoint on things. And we sat down and talked and, and we talked a lot about, about words and, and the meanings that they have. And like, he said that, that he's about 10 years younger than me. So he's early forties. And, and he said that like to him, the term monkey, he said, I didn't even really get it. It didn't mean anything to me. He said, but to my dad from his era, it just had this, this visceral reaction to it. And, you know, what I'm trying to get to with this long drawn out rambling is that we need to be sensitive to, and by we, I mean me, um, (laughs) and anybody else that cares, cares to, um, but to be sensitive to people's background and experiences and understand that people see symbols and hear words and, and they, they take them in different contexts and, and just to be respectful of that and not to dismiss somebody and say, well, you shouldn't feel that way. Um, it's, it's been really interesting having my mother-in-law moved in with this about a year ago. She's 84. So she experienced real honest to God racism where, you know, she got called the N word. She got spit on. Uh, she has a relative that, got caught with a white woman that they were going to lynch that basically got out of town ahead of the mob. To hear the stories that, that she tells, you can understand why certain words have an emotional impact that they might not have on somebody else. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it just, it was interesting talking to this guy. We had, we had a real good talk and, and it, it's just, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. What's my point? I don't really have one. It's just that <laughs> it's, I wish more people would, I wish we could be better about sitting down and listening to each other instead of yelling at each other on social media. Yeah, no, I, I can agree with that. Um, I, one thing I want to rewind is you were talking about how with military and foreign policy, we view these people overseas as the as the other as right. inhuman and we and i've talked with this a bit with phil about this before because you know he's he's an ex-jarhead crayon eater um <laughs> that's that's something that really hits me too because i i had a well probably a year or two ago i i was reading the this is this is gonna go christian but i was reading the book of jonah okay. and i was seeing what was happening in um 
which I, I think it was I think it was Syria. It was when the Syria uh, when Obama was wanting to go to Syria and there was a lot of backlash. And I remember posting something about this and saying, you know, you need to look at the end of Jonah. You need to look at this point in time in the Bible where Jonah had been told by God to go and speak to the other, to the the Ninevites, the inhuman, etc. And um, said, hey, repent and you'll be saved. And then he went and he did that and they repented and they were saved. And then that, that, that little bastard sat there pissed off that God didn't destroy these people. Yeah. And it was one of those things, and it may have, it may have actually been something to do with Iraq. I can't remember. There's so many freaking conflicts that I can't you know I can't right. keep it that straight. Could be Yemen, you know, Libya, and, but and, I definitely yeah. Syria. Yeah I, yeah, I definitely mentioned Iraq when I was talking about it though, because that's a, essentially the same place that Nineveh was. Uh-huh. And so it was one of those things where I was like, I don't understand how these Christians um, can look at this situation and see these people who are going to be destroyed and killed and not have not be able to look at this moment in their history and go okay so god's clearly against this yeah god is saddened by this i i am so frustrated by and and, you know people that aren't believers i feel like i can give them a little bit more of a pass you know i Mm -hmm. i I guess you you know if, if you believe in I don't know. You know, if you, if you don't believe in the dignity of the individual, I can see how you could justify killing somebody. But people that claim to be believers and, and people who claim to believe in a God who says that we are all his children, how the church can so vehemently support these wars is just beyond me. That's why I started Godarchy. I really I want that to be an anti-war voice in the world of Christendom. Right. Well, and that's and that's. I have this one of the things that really threw me as a Christian because it was after I I hit some Ron Paul and after I, my views on foreign policy were were shifting and changing and I was really challenging myself in that idea is uh, when um, what's his name uh, Osama bin Laden was killed mm-hmm. right and and this is not someone that you can that there's no reason for you to feel sorry for this person right no like this is a guy who killed a bunch of people he deserves everything he gets. You know, but I'm sitting in a Christian college and the news comes out that he's been killed and there were people running like Christian kids running through the quad and stuff like that, screaming and celebrating and all of this. And I had this weird moment that deeply affected me because it went further than I was comfortable with Yeah, because I sat there and I thought this death independent of what's gone on this is still someone who was once a baby someone who at one point in their life didn't have these evil awful thoughts and didn't do these evil awful things and that you know god despite these actions still wanted to get to him still wanted to find his way to change him and it was this weird moment where there was this this very human fleshy part of me that was like i'm so happy this guy is dead right and then there's this other spiritual part of me that's like kind of saddened by this reaction that i'm seeing and it made no sense to me and it freaked me out (laughs) and it really changed a lot of how i view things yeah that's 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 poignant that's one of the things i i pointed out in the in this article about unpersoning is that 
you know, when, when you kill somebody, and I actually had a conversation not too long ago with the, with a guy about the death penalty. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, I was, I was diehard bet death penalty eye for an eye. Yeah. And, uh, and the, the point that I tried to make to him and he wasn't buying it, but, and, and this is a believer, you know, I said, when you execute that person, when the state executes that person and, and never mind the whole thing about how bad the state is, is doing it. I'm not sure that we should be trusting it to dispense uh, life or death justice, but setting yeah. that aside, let's say the guy is guilty and, and by all, all measures of justice deserves, uh, deserves to die. The moment that you flip that switch or push that syringe, you have terminated that person's opportunity to ever repent, to ever, make right with God. And, and we're taught that nobody is too far away from God. Right. So how can right. you, like, I understand lock the dude up, you know, and, and then he got all pragmatic. Well, it costs a lot of money to keep people in jail, you know, but, <laughs> but the point being if, and, and again, you know, I'm talking to talking to Christians here, but if you believe what Jesus taught, then you need to live what Jesus taught. And Jesus didn't teach all of this, this right wing statism that's out there. Right terms of uh, what we do with people's lives and you know right there's a there's a, a u.s senator was it was it hunter um he's out in california i think it's hunter duncan hunter yeah duncan hunter did you see the comments that he made the other day about about how he was an artillery officer and and mm -hmm. I, he, i'm certain that i killed all kinds of civilians and you know just oh. like da, 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 no big deal i'm like what a piece of garbage yeah, he just said it so nonchalantly, like it was just, it was almost cool that he did it. Yeah, it's like Phil and I were talking about in the last episode about uh, his friend who uh, was a Marine saying that the only reason he's voting for Trump in 2020 is because he uh, pardoned Eddie Gallagher. Yeah. Or is thinking about pardoning him. You know, and I don't like, I, the, the, the blame the soldier stuff bothers me. Like you see some, some of the hardcore anarchists will really go hard after anybody that served in the military and uh, and there was a little bit on of that on the comments when i posted that article on on the godarchy page in anybody's defense who runs immediately we we are immersed in statism we mm -hmm. are victims all of us of this propaganda you know we start saying that stupid pledge of allegiance from the time we're in preschool <laughs> and and we're taught that all of our causes are just and you know there's there's nothing better than to serve and I mean, you know, you, you put an 18-year-old and, and put a recruiter in front of him and, and promise him college and, well, hell, why not join? I mean, I, was, I, was, I wanted to be a Navy pilot. I thought about it too. I've, I applied we, to I, ROTC. I don't like to blame the soldier. But when you have somebody that, that is so disconnected from what they have done, because most people, like, like my grandfather, I mentioned him. You know, he served in, in the Army for let's see, 42, 52, 62, almost 30 years. And he was very proud of his service. He was very proud that he was in the army to, to the day he died. But there was also that part of him that understood what he, he wrestled with what he had done. He especially wrestled with Vietnam. Oh, yeah. In fact, Vietnam turned him into a, a, a very non-interventionist when it comes to – he was certainly no libertarian or anarchist, but he was definitely a non-interventionist because he had seen the impact and the fruitlessness of America's effort to turn Vietnam into some kind of American democratic paradise. 
So I, I can respect that. I can respect where he comes from, but I just can't respect somebody that, that has seen all of that and then is just completely unaffected by it. I, that boggles my mind. When I when we talked about the Eddie Gallagher thing originally, um, there's another there's a Marine guy that comes into um, the place I work, and uh, he, I was kind of saying you know I can't I kind of offhandedly said something about it and because this was a the person he killed was a wounded person who was being treated by a by a medic and he he killed him and then he also apparently took out a sniper rifle on a couple of occasions and shot at or shot civilians civilians yeah he intentionally targeted civilians and so like i'm i'm disgusted by this and this guy looks at me and he was like we're at war we're always at war when we're over there you that's just that's just how it works i think you should get a pardon like oh god well and you know what somebody on on that 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 argument was one of the first comments when i posted that article on godarchy you know somebody made that made that well you know following orders we're at war blah 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 and the next comment was was pretty poignant they said yeah that's what every nazi thought at nuremberg yep you know and and ultimately we are responsible as individuals and we're all individualists here we are individually responsible for the moral decisions that we make you you can't pass the buck Uh, somebody told me to well you know like my mom always said, you know, if somebody told you to jump off a high cliff, would you do it? And, you know, I was pretty dumb when I was 14. I probably would have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it'd be, it's surprising just, um, you know, in my role as a, as a police officer when I was in the military, it's surprising. It'll blow your mind how often you're actually told to do things that aren't, you know, by the books. Or, you know, they're, they, always, they always say there's letter of the law, spirit of the law, and then that there's always, you know, you have your discretion and you do these things, but all these things that you're told to do that just don't make any sense. And, you know, you have this duty, for lack of a better word, that you're supposed to disobey unlawful orders, but it's just crazy how very few people actually do that. Like, for example, we had, um, when I was stationed in Yuma, kind of an armpit city here in Arizona, um, it's an air base. There was, um, an augment, a person from another unit, sent to work with us because we didn't have enough people to man our all of our stations, and he was um, he was a conscientious objector, so he um, he got sent to us because he didn't want he refused to deploy with his unit, and it was it was crazy seeing how just in the bat of an eye he was demonized how everyone turned on him and this like you guys were saying how he was dehumanized in the eyes of everyone else he was the other he wasn't one of us anymore he didn't wear the same uniform as us anymore he was just some piece of garbage that we all needed to spend you know as much time as possible mocking and ridiculing because he was viewed as a coward right and that makes actually makes me think of desmond doss do you know desmond doss no sure mike does no no, I'm not familiar. There was a movie. It was, I'm pretty sure Mel Gibson directed it. I can't remember, but it starred Andrew Garfield and it was about Desmond Doss. And he was a uh, conscientious objector that that went to war. And while he was at war, I mean, he went to join the military, but he refused to have a gun. He refused to to fight. He refused to do all sorts of things. Um, but he decided what he was going to do was be a medic. And so there's a movie out there that you should definitely, definitely watch about it. But he went, he, like, there was this one battle and he was pulling people, like, you know, friend and enemy alike, pulling people out so that he could help them, so he could save them. And, like, it's it's an incredible movie. And I'm going to have to Google it so I can tell you what it's called. It's like Hacksaw Ridge. Yes, Hacksaw Ridge. 
so good. And it's like that's that's the kind of person that I'm I'm not a pacifist. I'm I'm all about non-aggression, but my god, that that's a person that I could look up to. Yeah. You know, I I'm a believer that you're talking about that 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 culture. I'm a believer in well, when when I was in in school the first time, so I have an accounting degree. This is a little known fact about about Mike Meharry. Uh, actually, I actually have an accounting. Is it you're a nerd? Degree. <laughs> no, nobody knows that. That's not a secret. But uh, so I took a lot of business classes, and and I had a really really good business management course um, that I took. And one of the things that I still remember from that, and this was my first foray through school, so it was a long time ago. Uh, but this whole idea of corporate culture. In how various organizations, companies, they develop their own identity and their own culture and their own way of doing things. And new people that are brought into it are quickly pushed to conform to that culture. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very true, not just of companies and, and organizations, but also things like the military uh, and, and government agencies and, and all of these things. They have these, these cultures and it's very difficult for individuals, even people in leadership positions to change the momentum of those things. And, and there's a guy named William Stringfellow that uh, wrote a book. It's, it's um, I can't remember the title of it. It's, it's about Christian ethics. And he mm-hmm. terms all of these things in, in, in the way he terms it is that these are all principalities. So he's going okay. off those verses in Ephesians and that, and, and he's almost saying, I haven't finished the book yet, so I'm not quite sure exactly what he's saying specifically. But, <laughs> but what where where I feel like he's going is that these institutions have a spiritual life of their own, and they take on an identity of their own, and and they and they ultimately will swallow up the individuals that are in them. Unless you are a an extremely strong uh, individual, it's very difficult to resist the, the momentum of these institutions. So, you know what you're saying with them. With the conscientious objector, he's he is going against that that f- culture, that flow, and and so everybody, it's almost an obligation. We've got to get this guy to conform, and 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 you know where you really see this is in police. Um, oh yeah, I, that's that's the problem in policing is that it has adopted this militarized, uh, almost almost a a literal army as opposed to you know back in the 70s and the 60s it was protect and serve well now they turn that into command and control and you are indoctrinated into this and you're indoctrinated that everybody's the enemy and every dog's can bite you so shoot the dog and you know uh, everybody's resisting and you see this play out on on a daily basis with the way people are treated and in and, and the way that everybody says well it's just a few bad cops but it is the culture that they're in and that's why it is allowed to to continue because nobody's willing to call them out because it's part of the culture right and i love that people people say you know it's just a few bad apples and i'm like did you forget the second half of that state that saying a few bad apples ruin the bunch like how do, how do you how are you saying the first half of that as a defense? Like <laughs> because they're what? <laughs> you want to hear something funny about protect and serve? When I was in MP school in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, uh, one of the instructors there, you know, during our kind of um, onboarding, our kind of introduction to first few days there, like what's going to go on? He said, you know, who, you know, show of hands, how many people are familiar with the phrase protect and serve cops that are protect and serve. And of course, you know, everybody, all of us raise our hand. And he says, forget everything you know about that. 
It's suspect and unnerve. Everyone's up to something. Huh. I just got back <laughs> from Washington, D.C. I went to Washington, D.C. yesterday. Ooh. I told me, yeah, I know you. I went actually to do a documentary, so it was kind of a cool thing. And I only had to be there for one day. I flew out in in the morning and out in the evening, so I don't think I got anything on me. <laughs> <laughs> I have this weird relationship with Washington, D.C. because there's a lot of things about it I really like, and that's the history nerd in me. You know, it's, it's just there is so much history there, and I love the museums and, and statues and the artwork and all that stuff. But there is a sense that it feels very, to me now, very oppressive and and in the sense of i feel like everybody's watching me and there's 657 million cops and i just find that unnerving and then on a side note the tsa agent at reagan touched my balls and i did not like that (laughs) (laughs) can i can i say something that's been on my mind and i've not been able to work it into our show just yet I am so tired. The show went off the rails a long time ago. So. Well, here's the thing. Like, I, if I see one more libertarian argument that starts with a debt clock, I'm going to blow my brains out. I am so tired of pragmatic arguments that it's crazy. I, I'm, I, I don't know if, 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 if I'm crazy for this, but I've moved full into moral arguments. Oh yeah, that's that's where I am. I I'm not going to talk to you about how much this or that costs. I'm going to talk to you about that person who's dying, that person who's stolen from. Like, does that bother you as much as it bothers me, or am I just being sensitive? Well, <laughs> I tell you where. No, I think I think you're dead on. And and you know it's funny because I told somebody the other day if you if you go look at the at the Godarchy website, which is Godarchy.org, shameless plug. <laughs> Oh, those are allowed. You'll see that I've written the same article like 500 times. I mean, I've, it seems like every, to every article that I write for that site is that government is violence, coercion, and force. If I can't do anything else, I want to make statists own the fact that what they're advocating is violence, coercion, and force. No matter what they're trying to do, no matter how great they think their program is or how beneficial it is or how – you are advocating violence, coercion, and force. And that's exactly what you're saying. It's, it's that moral argument. And, you know, to, to take it a step away from our position and just going into the whole idea of the Constitution, I mean, you've, you've got this Constitution that everybody says, this is the rule of law, right? And yet, all of the arguments that you hear in politics in the United States, nobody ever asks, is this constitutional? Right. The question is, it's, it's that same, it's the, it's the debt clock, you know. Ugh. Is the tariff going to bring China to the table or is the tariff going to, uh, you know, ruin the American economy? Well, the first question you should ask is, does the president have the authority to unilaterally lay a tariff? No, the answer is. But we just ignore all of that. So that's kind of what we do at the Tenth Amendment Centers. We keep making these principled arguments based on the Constitution. And Again, even if you're sitting there going, oh, here goes Meharry with the stupid constitution. <laughs> uh, it's not fit to exist. I get it. I've heard it before. You're not telling me anything I don't know. <laughs> I think one of the things that, that we do effectively at the Tenth Amendment Center that I think is important is we erode this idea that you really care about the constitution. Again, it's making people – I want people to own the moral or the the – theoretical position that they're taking and quit deluding themselves that there's something else. Republican, you are not a limited government guy. Democrat, 
progressive. You are not on the moral high ground because you want to take my stuff and give it to somebody else. Warmonger, you're not protecting my freedoms. You're killing brown people. Make people own those positions that they're trying to take and, and wrap up in this, this uh, uh, status BS. Yeah, no, and that's, that's, that's what's kind of funny is like, um, I've been in a lot of liberty groups. One of the ones that was actually really seminal to me was one called the Academy for the Study of Liberty, mm -hmm. um, which has Suzanne Sherman and I don't know if you know Carl Jones, um, Dave Benner, like that. Carl Jones um, is actually a guy that um, worked with my dad. Oh, okay, I know and Carl so, pretty well. Yeah, Carl's great. Benner's a bigger nerd than I am. <laughs> He's got. I think he has more tattoos though. Oh yeah, he definitely has more tattoos. <laughs> but but that, that was back is covered with a tattoo. But but that was my that was one of the like Carl was one of the huge things for me was because I was like okay I'm done with this crap can I be an anarchist and he goes you can be an anarcho -cap capitalist and I was like to Google I go but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but that was the thing like I was in all these different um, liberty groups and people just assumed because I could talk Constitution that I was a minarchist right. And that, you know, and I don't, I don't, I don't really use the word anarchist just because, you know, yeah, like semantically I have issues. Um, and also it turns people off. So I like, if I'm being absolutely clear for me, it, I, I use the term uh, patient monarchist because I'm living in a world that has a state, but I'm waiting for Christ to be king. Right. Kind of where I am. That's, um, that's cool. I like that. But um, no, so everyone just thought I was this minarchist and it was hilarious because the minarchists would come to me to fight the anarchists and then right. the anarchists would come to me to fight the minarchists who weren't using the constitution correctly. And, <laughs> and I'm in the middle and both, both sides would come to me. I'm like, you both are irritating me. Stop. Stop. Shut up. <laughs> just we're, 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 we're all going in the same general direction, you know, let's, let's, let's work it. Let's work this a little better. But that's what was so funny. Cause I, cause I was just constitution, constitution, constitution. And I'm at this point right now where I'm like, yeah, I, I will talk constitution. I will, you know, I'll bitch about, um, incorporation doctrine, right. but, um, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm past it at this point in a sense. I'm just like, right. I'm done. I can't, I can't handle the constitution anymore because what good is it done? Yeah. And it's frustrating. For me, I have, so I feel like I have my feet in two worlds, like one foot in, in each world. Um, <clears throat> and it's weird because I've gotten, I've gotten a boatload of, of friend requests over the last six months or so. And a lot of them are, so I get the anarchists who don't realize that I do the constitution stuff. And then I get the constitution people that don't realize I'm an anarchist. Yeah. And, and so it freaks both of them out. Um, to me, the constitution is a tool. It, it is a, you know, I think there's two important things that we need to do as advocates for Liberty. And some people are going to do one thing and some are going to do the other thing. And, and some like me are going to do both. I think there, we need people who can articulate the principles that can, uh, can make those moral arguments that you're talking about. But we also live in a real world. And uh, as Murray Rothbard said, parroting libertarian principles is, is not going to get you anywhere in the real world. That's a paraphrase. Yeah. It's actually a really good quote, much better than I just put it. <laughs> I do the work at the 10th Amendment Center because that is one place that I see actual work that's being done that is helping to 
break down and attack the the federal government, which the state, yeah. To me, I think the the biggest threat to liberty is centralized power. Oh yeah, absolutely. All government sucks. State governments suck. Local governments suck. My local government is suing me, so I can tell you how bad local governments suck. <laughs> centralized power is is the most dangerous. So I want to decentralize it, just like I want the economy to be decentralized. I don't want you know Walmart to run groceries. I, I want not monopoly government. I don't yeah. want monopoly government. And, and that's what we're doing at the 10th Amendment Center. That's what we're doing with nullification. We're actually using state and local power and ultimately individual power to undermine this tendency toward consolidation. And the cool thing about nullification too is that in a subtle way, it teaches people that you don't have to bow down to the, to the big authority, you know, that mm-hmm. it's okay to say no. Um, one, of my, one of my personal heroes is Rosa Parks. And, mm-hmm. and I know some people get all, well, she was a blah, blah, you know, okay, I get it. But the fact that she, that the way she went about what she did, she refused to give up that seat. And yet she was willing to face the consequences. She didn't punch the driver. You know, she mm-hmm. didn't burn the bus. She stood her ground. She made her moral case. And then she went to jail and her actions symbolic though they were and she wasn't the first person to not give up her scene incidentally but yeah that sparked a movement that ultimately undermined jim crow you know and and i think in most cases when when the federal government does something it's almost always following individuals and then local and then state action perfect example is weed you know first off people have been smoking weed forever right Mm -hmm. and then 1996, California legalizes medical marijuana and the federal government cracked down so hard. You know, you want to talk about some heroes. Uh, those folks that, it, that endured the early days of medical marijuana when their dispensaries were getting shut down and, and people were getting hauled off to da- jail and then they were reopening them four hours later. You know, those people had, had gets. I say this all the time. If the gun people had nearly the, the gonads of the weed people, we could nullify the, the federal gun laws with, with just like that. Federal government can't enforce all this crap. But the problem is, is that all the right wingers, oh, we've got to follow the, we've got to wait for the Supreme Court to give us permission to utilize our right. But that's just stupid. So anyway, my point is, is that this whole process of nullification it subtly undermines that that idea of authority, and it says, you know what? Maybe maybe the smaller body has a little bit of authority that it can exercise, or 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 maybe the individual has right. some authority that he or she can exercise. So that's why I do what I do. It's not because I have any great reverence for the Constitution, although I think for what it was at its time, uh, I, I think it was a, it was a pretty amazing advance. You know, you look at some of the stuff that Jefferson wrote. And, and he was like almost there, you know? I mean, he actually talked about in, in one, of the, one of the letters he wrote, he talked about the fact that he wasn't quite certain that one generation could bind the next. So maybe we should have a new constitution like every 30 years. You know, he was, he was kind of getting to this point that where he was thinking about this idea of consent and yeah. that, you know, I can't consent for somebody that's dead. Mm-hmm. And and so you see you see these thinkers at that time, and, and considering where they came from, you know, from from the idea that the monarch is the the end all be all to this idea of of 
you know, government by consent and then that government actually has limits. That was radical that you're going to write oh, yeah. down limits on government. So it's, and it's like, we got to that point and then it just stopped. And it's like, mm-hmm. come on people, let's, let's take that next step. Um, so well, yeah. Well, yeah. And that nullification is one of my favorite concepts as well. I mean, it's, it's funny because, you know, I, I'm from Alabama. I'm from Birmingham and yeah, Alabama. Oh yeah. I, and, and I moved here to Georgia right. um, about a year ago. And, you know, three, four years ago, I was, I was telling my mom who's in the, she, she runs a ministry that helps women who've had abortions. And I've been privy to the pro-life movement my whole life. Right. And people keep saying, you know, how are we going to overturn Roe versus Wade? How are we going to make blah, blah, blah? And I was like, it's never going to work that way. You have to nullify. You have to nullify. Yet the state has to decide that they're going to make their laws and change things the way they want to change them. And my mom thought I was insane. She was like, it can't be state by state. It has to be blah, blah. And I was like, that's the only way it's going to happen. And I even had a, a Facebook post about it. And then, you know, what was it last month? Alabama nullified Roe versus Wade. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> the, the Alabama governor signed the, uh, the, the marriage bill too. So mm-hmm. they're getting rid of marriage licenses. Yeah. And that's, and that's, and that's what's so funny is cause I, I actually took a screenshot of that, that Facebook post from three years ago and um, I sent it to my mom. I texted it to her. <laughs> Here you and go, she, mom. And she goes, and she goes, you no, you called it. I never would have thought that that would have happened. I was like, okay she was like she was like and so it's funny since then and also since i told her that back you know years ago that um the war in iraq was gonna cause a lot of bigger issues that we they didn't foresee you know isis and she, she said it twice she's come back to me and she's been like okay so you were right about iraq and she, she okay so you were right about nullifi- nullification and she and so then some other thing came up the other day and she was like okay i want your analysis on this what has to happen <laughs> you're, like, you're, you're like your mom's peter schiff you know <laughs> so it was so funny because I was, I was just like i can't believe this is happening because my dad yelled at me about how how much iraq needed to be bombed and stuff and i was like no right. i was so mad <laughs> that's uh that's that's pretty wild yeah you know that's you, you know i'll give you a perfect example of of the the way the the federal government and the politicians follow the leader uh really cool issue was right to tr- right to try i don't know if you guys are familiar with that or- yeah yeah i mean donald trump was uh for that wasn't he yeah, he he signed a a national right to try. Of course, by the time the federal government got around to doing it, forty states had already done it, and yeah. uh, so it's just like weed. It's just like hemp. When when the feds realize that something is out of their control, then they're going to rush in and do something, and then try to take credit for it. Like, oh look, we fixed this. No, you didn't. It was being fixed long before you voted into that. Yeah, on and, your white horse. right. And the, that's the one thing the federal government's good at is saying, you know what. I know you have your laws that the Constitution says that you should be able to write and the freedoms that the Constitution says the states and the people have, but I'm going to ignore that because the 14th Amendment. Yeah. Yeah, That kind of, that brings me into something that Cam was telling me about the other day because I wasn't, I'm not too familiar with, uh, you know, what's called the incorporation doctrine. And he told me a little bit about it and how it's how the feds essentially use the 14th Amendment against the states, you know, to get compliance. Right. But, you know, Cam's pretty dumb. And I don't trust what he says most of the time. <laughs> so so I was wondering if you can give a layman like myself maybe a breakdown of what that is and if it's as awful as Cam told me it was. 
Yes, it's the most awful, horrible thing in the world. And unfortunately, there are a lot of libertarians, uh, particularly in the LP, who particularly love the, the, the weed boys. Doctrine. Oh, surprising. Gun people like the incorporation doctrine too. So here's the, here's the rundown. We've got the Bill of Rights in the Constitution, right? Right. Now, the first, the first thing that people get wrong, a lot of people, is that they think the Bill of Rights gives them rights. Well, that's absurd. The government doesn't give you rights. And the, the people who wrote the Bill of Rights didn't think that. The Bill of Rights should have been called a Bill of Restrictions. It restrictions, it restricts the actions of the government. It says, government, you shall not infringe on uh, my right to free speech. You shall not infringe on my right to free religion. You shall not infringe on my privacy. You shall give me due process. Bill of Rights is a restriction on government. Right. The federal government. Right. Because I was getting ready. That was, was my next step. What government? Well, if you look at the preamble to the Bill of Rights, and like 99% of Americans don't even realize the Bill of Rights has a preamble. But if you read the preamble to the Bill of Rights, it's very, very clear that it was a restriction on the federal government, which makes sense. The Constitution created the federal government. Therefore, any restrictions are going to apply to the government that it's attached to, and that's the federal government. And, and there is absolutely, I will say this emphatically, there is absolutely no founding era evidence that anybody ever thought the Bill of Rights was going to apply to the states. All of the state constitutions have their own Bill of Rights, which would be kind of redundant and dumb if it was all covered under the federal Bill of Rights. Uh, you can look at the opinion that George Marshall wrote. I just had a feeling that I said his name wrong. <laughs> we'll say Marshall because I think I said his first name wrong. But anyway, was, was it John? I don't know. <laughs> Some dead guy. It was that. It was that <laughs> Supreme Court justice who screwed up the country. Um, but he wrote in Barron versus Baltimore very clearly, and and he lays it out perfectly why the Bill of Rights does not apply to the states. It, it is it is attached to the federal government. There's no question about this. And it's interesting because if you go back and you look at the drafting of the constitution you look at the philadelphia convention one of the things that james madison pushed hard for was that the federal government should have a veto over state laws he wanted that in there and it was rejected emphatically yeah that was not something that was ever going to be ratified and he actually brought it up again when he wrote the bill of rights if you look at his original draft of the bill of rights you can see the way he wrote it he wrote it so that some of those rights particularly the right to free speech, religion, those were going to apply to the states as well, where, where he put them in the, con in the Constitution. That was also changed during the, uh, during the ratif not ratification, but the drafting process. Mm -hmm. Nobody wanted the federal government policing the states. That was the bottom line. Yeah. So fast forward to the 14th Amendment, which was a very specific thing for a very specific purpose. Number one, it was to ensure that the freed slaves were considered citizens because primarily because in uh, uh, Dred Scott, that opinion held that black people were not parties to the compact, basically, that slaves were not part of the political, uh, political society. That's why we could make them be slaves, and that's why even a free black person uh, was not covered by the uh, – the rights of citizenship, so to speak. And so the, the uh, 14th Amendment was necessary to ensure that they 
newly freed slaves were considered full citizens just like everybody else. Right. And didn't that didn't that invent the idea of U.S. citizenship as opposed to state citizenship? Uh, I, I don't know that I buy that. Uh, there's a whole train of thought out there that I don't even want to get into. I call them the gold fringe on the flag people. Um, that, that will cite all of these statutes and all of this stuff and talk about, I don't know, that, that I think it's BS and not really practically uh, useful. So I, I, don't, I won't get into that. I think, I think there was a conception of, of American citizenship. People were primarily citizens of their states, that's true. But when you consider the fact that the federal government had control over naturalization, which is the mm-hmm. endowing of citizenship, so that implies that there is some type of of bigger picture citizenship. Gotcha. But regardless, um, the, the second point of the 14th Amendment was to constitutionalize the Civil Rights Act of 1866. So if you look at that Civil Rights Act, it actually lays out and enumerates the privileges that um, every American, no matter what state they were in, were to have. And they were very basic things like the, uh, the right to enter into contract, the right to own land, the right to travel freely, uh, very specific basic things that were being denied in some places to the newly freed slaves. There was no sense that it was ever supposed to, uh, for instance, have anything to do with who got to vote or desegregation of schools. I mean, that was absurd. Washington, D.C. had segregated schools at the same time that the 14th Amendment was being ratified. So it clearly wasn't supposed to desegregate schools. You know, I mean, it's just just common sense. So long and short of it is the 14th Amendment was not ever meant to apply the Bill of Rights to the states. That's very clear if you look at the uh, if you look at the drafting and ratification. So fast forward 50 or 55 years, the Supreme Court pulls out of its butt this idea of the incorporation doctrine that somehow the 14th Amendment applies the Bill of Rights to the states and that therefore the courts can overturn state laws and demand that the state do, states do certain things based on the 14th Amendment. So why is that so horrible? Well, it's good if you look at it in a narrow sense, because you're going to say, oh, well, look, the federal government's going to come in and they're going to make sure that the states don't violate our rights. I can make the same argument about the UN, though. Why not yeah. give the UN power to make sure that the United States doesn't violate my rights? Well, the UN doesn't understand our, well, you know what? Washington, D.C. doesn't understand Alabama either. Yep. And therein lies yep. the problem. And what this is, is it is a centralizing force. And that goes back to my original point. The gravest threat to our liberty is the centralization of power. And when you give the federal government the right to, quote, unquote, protect your rights, you're also giving the federal government the right to define your rights. 99 times out of 100, they're going to F you over. And, you know, you can point to certain things. And I actually got into this debate with Nick Sarwark, the the illustrious chair of the Libertarian Party. He's the big (laughs) incorporation doctor. You know, he cut. thinks it's a great idea because he thinks that the federal government is – because the federal government has done some things that he likes, Civil Rights Act. Uh, and he pointed out to me, well, you know, in Virginia versus Loving, because he knows that my wife is black, you know, basically <laughs> the federal government made it so you could be married. And I'm like, How this sleazy. argument doesn't work on, work on me because I don't give two Fs what the state says about my relationship. But, you know. Um, That's so sleazy. <laughs> Super sleazy. 
that was. <laughs> so you can look at these various things and you can pick out, okay, this is a good thing. But by and large, it's been a disaster. You look at things like with searches and seizures, the federal courts are notoriously loose on allowing cops to search and seize. And so when the federal government with the incorporation doctrine says, oh yeah, Maryland, you can collect a prisoner's DNA even if they haven't been charged with a crime because they're in your jail or you know they've just been arrested. Well, then now that's the standard across the whole country. So you got to take the good with the bad. And I say this to everybody when it comes to government power because people on the left and the people on the right love to fight over federal power. And, and when they're in power, they want the federal government to do X, Y, and Z. You should always consider that any power that you give any government entity is at some point going to be in the hands of somebody you don't like. Yeah. Somebody that is going to abuse that power. So think of it like, like imagine I can do this because I have an ex-wife. Any, imagine that you, before you give any power to the government, imagine would you want my, your ex-wife to have this power? Yeah. And if the answer is no, then you probably shouldn't do it. Even though it might do something good in the short run, you're undermining liberty in the long run. You're centralizing authority. You're taking away power from the states. And well, Mike, the states are going to abuse our rights too. Well, deal with it within your state. Don't go running off to, to big Uncle Sam to, to fight your battles for you. If you also, don't like what's going on in your state, fight it there. Or move. Yeah, right. exactly. I mean, I'm, and I'm not saying a love it or leave it guy. I'm not that. But I'm just like, that was kind of one of the original ideas yes. of the Constitution was, hey, we have these different states. We have 50 different freedom slash liberty experiments going on. I mean, Massachusetts, I'm pretty sure, had a state church. They so did. obviously, if they had that after the Constitution. So did Maryland. Yeah. I mean, so how, how does incorporation doctrine work? But the, the idea is you have 50 states. Some are going to be freer than others. California is going to be less free in some ways and more free in others. Exactly. Move to the place that you want to be. Right. And this is something that, that, that this didn't really hit me until a couple of months ago. I went out to LA, hang out with Michael Bolden. And, uh, you know, people give him crap all the time about living in California, California, they call it. <laughs> and you know what? Most, most of it is, most of it are gun people because you ain't getting a gun in California. That's true. But, while we were out there, we went into a weed store and it was the weirdest thing to me. Now, I'm not, I'm not a weed guy, although I do take CBD oil <laughs> and I bought some illegal CBD pills. I probably shouldn't say this publicly. Uh, <laughs> You're good. I won't tell them. That have a little bit of THC in them. But anyway, so yeah, it was a weird thing to me and, and to stand there in this store was, it was like a freaking Apple store. Like it was pretty cool, you know? Yeah, I, I haven't been out there since then. And my, like I was telling my, my little sister lived in Colorado for a while. Yeah. And I was like, I want to go visit. And she was like, what would you do while you're here? And I was like, I want to go into a weed store. She was like, you're going to buy weed? It's like, no, I want to go in. Go in. Yeah. And it's this weirdest feeling to think I could be locked in a cage in Kentucky for being in this weed store. So mm -hmm. my point being is that you kind of have to think about, you pick, your, you pick the things that are important to you. And if guns are your thing, then you don't want to live in California. But if you want weed, you want to live in California. Or, you know, California is really, really good on limiting the surveillance state. I mean, at least to whatever degree that you can limit it. Much better than here in Kentucky. I mean, they won't even consider putting any restrictions on uh, surveillance equipment here in my little hometown, Lexington. So, 
Yeah, it's like you're saying, you, you have these areas of experiment and whether we want to admit it or not, Americans aren't all the same. Alabama no. is different than even Kentucky. Alabama, Alabama sure is different than different Georgia. Than California. Yeah, it is. I, I, I don't fit here. <laughs> it's only two hours away, but I don't fit the same here. Yeah. So it's insane. Yeah, I'm not a, not a big fan of the, uh, of the old incorporation doctrine. And again, it's because it's a centralizing force and I will grant you that it will, you know, the federal government every once in a while is, as the, the country folk here in Kentucky say, you know, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and again, uh, every once in a while, <laughs> you'll get a good ruling from the federal government. But even looking at where people think it's good, like the gun people point to uh, the McDonald decision, you know, and I, oh, see, we're going to get our gun rights. But when you read that decision, there's all kinds of restrictions and loopholes in that, that mm-hmm. I don't think they're aware of that's going to, that's going to bring in all kinds of additional gun controls and, Red flag laws are a direct oh. result of the way that Supreme Court ruling was was written. So, you know, you got to take the good with the bad. And, and and like I said, if if the federal government's involved, in my opinion, it's always bad. So, and since you mentioned it, I don't want to keep you too late because you know we know you're an old man and you need your sleep. Oh, I gotta get to bed. <laughs> but I would like if you can do just kind of a brief. I, I want to know why you hate surveillance so much and why you're fighting your city. Yeah, I, I hate surveillance so much. Actually, the, the, the thing that I hate the most mm-hmm. is the TSA. <laughs> yeah, the, the, which, um, which the really has security theater. But I just wanted, but I just wanted to, to, to mention that. And, and really, in the big scheme of things, the TSA is probably not the, the biggest problem facing America. It's not the biggest threat to our liberty, but it's so damn in your face. Yeah, You know, it's such a obvious violation of the Fourth Amendment, and it's so in your face. And, and they're just, they do it with such smugness and condescension. And then having worked in the airline industry, I can tell you emphatically that it is absolutely useless when it comes to actually creating security. Right. It's just security theater. Yeah. It's to make people feel safer. Well, you can't provide security when you're stealing from people. That's all they do. Right? Or grab your nuts. But anyway, <laughs> so so the surveillance thing, you know, I think that that it's it's such a big deal to me because that was uh, one of the first policy areas with the Tenth Amendment Center that I really immersed myself in. And, you know, we did the off now thing uh, several years ago now and when when Snowden came out with his revelations, we were looking, how can we at a state level undermine the, the surveillance state? So I really got into that, and I started going down the wormhole of reading and studying what was going on with, with surveillance technology. And when you start reading this stuff, it's easy to, to not realize it's there, and then once you realize it's there, it starts to creep you out, and you become really bizarre and paranoid. Yeah. You know, I just went down that wormhole. And and when you realize that, uh, you know, police departments have these devices that can lock onto every cell phone within a geographical area and track the location and download information off of those phones without you ever knowing it. Um, When you realize that they can track your movements with facial recognition, when you realize that the federal government has a huge database of license plate numbers where uh, they can connect dates and times that you've been in certain places. And then you start to see and hear the actual impact that happens. And I'll give you an example of this. I think it was out in Kansas. There was this guy, 
that he went to a store. He was in a relatively rural area, and he went to the store that sold like grow lights and all that kind of stuff. So it was a store where a lot of people that grew marijuana would get their their gear to do these indoor grows. So this guy goes there and they had set up an automatic license plate reader and they were scanning every Uh. license plate that came in and out of that store. So he gets in the database and uh, they do some more searching and they connect him with some guy that he had maybe some relationship with somehow. I don't remember all of the little uh, coincidental things that they put together, but long story short, one night, you know, he's laying in his bed and all of a sudden there are armed police officers crashing down his door, getting his wife and kids at gunpoint on the floor, you know, uh, terrorizing him. His, his wife is totally freaking out. He's totally freaking out. Cops tear his house apart, go down in the basement and find his tomato grow. You know, <sighs> This stuff has real impact on real people. And, and, you know, and then you start realizing that uh, when, when you start doing some study, the way they use surveillance on people like Martin Luther King or Black Lives Matter or Tea Party groups, you know, no matter what you think about their politics, the way that the surveillance state was used, anti-war movement, all of those people were surveilled and tracked. And, uh, you know, it's just, to me, privacy is one of those fundamental rights. It's part of... If you believe in self-ownership, privacy is a fundamental part of self-ownership. I, I own myself, I own my thoughts, and I own my actions, and nobody else has the right to know what I'm doing. And you get these bizarre arguments, people, well, if you don't have anything to hide, then you've got Ugh. nothing to fear. Oh, that just drives me crazy. Well, and it makes no sense when there are, what, over 10,000 federal laws that they could nab you for? Yeah, and there's no way you know any of those. And even more fundamentally, and I've done, you know, since the the city has sued me, and for people who don't know, that's that little saga. I basically, long story short, I did an open records request uh, to find out about some surveillance technology here in my town, and they don't want to give it up, so they sued me. How does that work? How do they sue you for asking for information? Well, it's a stupid, it's a stupid law. It's the way that the open records law is written in the state of Kentucky and, and not to get too deep into the weeds, but basically if, if you make an open records request and the entity denies it, then the process is I can appeal that to the state attorney general. So mm-hmm. the appeal goes to the attorney general's office. They review it. They have a whole department that's like open records law and they write these uh, opinions. And so I did that. And the attorney general agreed with me that these documents should be turned over. But the way the statute is written, if either party disagrees with the attorney general, then they can sue to keep the records from being presented or to, um, if I had been denied, I could have sued to get the police to do it. You know, so it takes it to the courts. But you can't sue the attorney general who issued the opinion. You have to sue the other party. That's just the way the law is written. It's, it's just stupid. And, of course, government agencies use that as a chilling effect because they know that when a constable comes and bangs on Mike Meharry's door at 8 o'clock at night and serves him with papers, and he reads those papers, and he's reading, you're going to pay the city's court costs. It's like, holy crap, what have I gotten myself into? You know, I don't have any money. I don't, I'm not a lawyer. I can't fight this. So they know that in 
99 out of 100 cases, unless it's like a big media organization, the person's just going to drop it. They can't fight it. So they get to keep their document secret. And luckily for me, I'm stubborn. Well, I don't know if that's lucky. Unluckily for them, I'm stubborn and happen to have enough connections where I was able to get the ACLU to represent ACLU to represent ACLU to represent me. So we actually have Ooh. oral arguments in the Court of Appeals tomorrow. Um, oh wow! Yeah, so we've we've gone Very all the way nice. to that level. But um, so what was the point of of that? <laughs> I don't know that, because I was going somewhere with that, with the broader, with the broader picture of, of surveillance. Yeah, you talked about TSA and yeah, we talked. You hate about surveillance. Things. I hate surveillance. Um, that's yeah, that's and, and you know, you realize that all all that all that I'm asking for is oversight and accountability. I mean, I'm not even I'm not even going the the radical. You know, you shouldn't have this stuff, police. Which you know, quite frankly, I don't think they should. But um, you know, even even being generous and saying yes you know, the, the public persona. Yes, there are legitimate law enforcement uses for this technology, but it, for God's sake, we should at least know that they have it and they should at least have a plan for using it and they should at least have some, some criteria where they can't just willy-nilly, you know, share this data and store it in these databases forever and ever. Right. And even without that, I'm, I can't tell you how paranoid I am these days because I see cameras every now and then, but I'm, I'm paranoid of human beings at this point. Because, you know, when I, when I was a kid, when you were a kid, when Phil was a kid, we were, we were all probably rough boys, right? Yeah. We all had bruises. Yeah. We all had this. We all had that. No problem. People were like, oh, a boy was playing. Like, at this point, I'm, I'm scared to take my, my kids to church half the time. Yeah. Because they'll see these bruises that they give each other or, or fall and do something adventurous. And I'm like, they're going to tell the state and the state's going to take my kids away. Yeah, you know it's funny because I just, I've got a huge bruise on my arm uh, from a hockey puck, and I had that thought the other day. You know, somebody gonna look at that and think my wife is beating me, or you know, or yeah. I mean, like I'm paranoid now because, and part of it's because we went to Target, and my middle son was screaming, and you know how like with a kid you might like tap, like barely tap their their lips when they're screaming, be like, come on, hush now. Yeah, like nothing, nothing violent or anything. This woman brought the security guard and she goes i saw you abusing that child oh my gosh and i said what are you talking about and she said you grabbed his 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 mouth and pulled his head back and i was like literally none of that happened yeah and so the the, the security guard thank god for private security um walks over walks after she she just got him so she could yell at me without consequence right and so she, he tells her you know keep going i'll talk to him and he goes he goes, I don't know what happened. I doubt what she said happened. But, you know, if you have to discipline your kid, I mean, go to the bathroom, take him out to the car. You know, if you have to spank him, that's fine. But, right. you know, and I was like, dude, I appreciate that. But still, I didn't do anything. And he goes, yeah, I don't right. think you, he goes, he goes, I don't think you did. But, you know, he goes, you know how bitches are. <laughs> now, if that had been city police, they would have shot your dog. Yeah, they would have definitely shot yeah. my dog. They would have come to your house and shot your dog. <laughs> Yeah, but I, yeah. I remember now what I was getting to with the with this with the privacy thing. Yeah. Uh, so being involved in this lawsuit, I've done a lot of radio shows, I've done a lot of interviews, and and so I've I've dealt with this this if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear mantra a lot. I mean that's the that's the go to argument. And it's kind of funny because you know I've, I've been doing this for a while now. People say it to me, and they, and it's like it's almost like they think. I got him, you know, he's never heard this angle before. (laughs) (laughs) 
but this is this is my return. It's like, dude, why do you have curtains on your windows? Yeah, why do you lock your door? Why do you lock your door? Yeah, and and then the and then the other thing I've done this on on a number why of radio shows. Yeah, nobody's ever taken me up on this, but I've I've every time I've ever done a radio interview and that's come up, I've said, I'll tell you what. I will make this offer to everybody that's out there. Send me the past year of your internet browsing history. Don't delete anything. <laughs> you can get that. Get that information. Email it to me, and I'll post it on my website. <laughs> and you know, to this day, I've not gotten one person that's ever sent me their web browser. Oh, you don't, you don't say. If they've got nothing to hide. Yeah, yeah. If they've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear. And, and, that's, and that really is the point. Like I said, privacy is a very fundamental thing that we all inherently believe in. You know, it's why we go to the bathroom in, in little stalls. It's like I said, well, we have curtains on our windows. It's why we wear clothes. It's not that I'm doing something bad, but I don't want you overhearing my personal conversations. It's none of your damn business. And, you know, you, you take that a step farther and it's like you said, people will misconstrue and make assumptions. And when the government is involved, then there's guns involved. Then there's guns involved. And, and Glenn Greenwald did a fantastic TED talk uh, on, on privacy. And one of the things he said is that when you say that, when you say I have nothing to hide, what you're saying is you're making yourself so passive and so conformed to what the government expects from you that you don't even care that the government's watching you all the time. That is not a very strong kind of human being. That's not a Crazy. person that you want to be. And that's like, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty profound because we all like to think, oh, yeah, we're tough individuals. No, you're a bunch of damn bootlickers, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. to, to, be, <laughs> to be blunt and use the – I don't like calling people that or calling people sheeple, but some of those – I just hate sheeple. Like I just, <laughs> Dude, well, it's just a dumb word. Yeah, I, I hate that. Like, I also hate the word bullcorn, Phil. Okay, listen. Let's get back to the show. Come on. <laughs> what was that word? Bullcorn. I don't even know what that is. It's, what is it's that? that's a thing. <laughs> it's uh, instead of saying BS, we like to say bullcorn. No, we don't like to say it. I was gonna say we we don't say that in Kentucky. <laughs> I, well, I say it. He's trying to get me to say bull shark, and I'm not. I'm not buying it. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the ranch. <laughs> yeah, now that Cam's ruined the episode. Yeah, it was, this was going pretty good until then. Now it's lame. Hey, it's totally lame. <laughs> I had a good laugh, and that's all that's important to me. Well, there you go. All right. all right. The moral of the story is I hate surveillance because it's invasive, and we're, we're people that own ourselves, and therefore government doesn't have any business poking into what we're doing. Oh, I agree. At the least, get a damn warrant. Yeah, and even then I have issues. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I actually just wrote it. I just wrote an article about how uh, here's something that'll creep you out. They're they're doing these things they call them geofence warrants. Oh, what they'll do is they'll go to a uh, a service provider, and they'll basically draw a line on a map, like a you know an area and a map where there was a crime, and they will get all of the electronic devices that pass through that area for within a certain amount of time so basically oh, wow. everybody that's in that that within that geofence becomes a suspect oh wow oh that's awful and there are judges signing off on these warrants oh that's that's oh god which is funny because i i got in this debate on i have i have a little uh facebook page for the for the activism work in lexington it's called we see you watching lexington and uh 
some cop got on there, got on there, and he was like, "You shouldn't be worried about this because the judges will protect you." <laughs> what? Yeah, the, yeah, the judges, the judges are going to protect me. I'm like, they're cop. They're yeah. just going to rubber stamp the warrants and then on to the next one. What is what is he talking about? I mean, I, I think I think warrant having a warrant requirement is better than not having a warrant requirement, c- certainly. But right, but a judge isn't a bulletproof vest. No, no, not not in this day and age. But anyway. <laughs> All right, I think I think I have. I think we did well. I think this is good, Mike. I'm glad we had you on. You're definitely better than Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> now I, you know, let's not let's not. I've had Ryan on the Godarchy podcast, and it was a good discussion. <laughs> no, we 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 love him. We wouldn't have had him for the first two chats that we had if we didn't. You had him for two. Yeah, we did because we did we did one with him about techno agorism, and then we had him come on to talk to us because I had a couple people be like, "What, what, what about you? What do you? Where'd you come from?" Kind of things. So we're like, techno agorism. Okay. Talk about nerdy. Hey, I made up. What's funny is his show, tech, techno agorist, it didn't yeah. exist until I I titled my episode that. It's awesome. <laughs> um, but yeah, I have one. I have one question. I've heard of I've I've heard of the Tom Woods bump. I've heard of the Colbert bump. The Rogan bump. Do you think there's a Meharry bump? I'm pretty certain there's not. <laughs> you know, okay, so here's the funny thing. You know, most people, like, like I've, I've gone to a number of events. Most of the stuff, that event-type stuff I've gone to is with the Tenth Amendment Center, and I've gone to a lot of stuff with Michael Bolden. And basically, most people know me as, oh, you're that dude that works with Michael Bolden. So if you want a bump, you need to get Bolden on the show. There, there's your bump because I'm just basically, basically his second fiddle. Oh yeah, and you know we'd be happy with that, but you know we we like you better. So well, and he's hard to get a hold of. He's I'm sure he is. He doesn't he doesn't like do media, and you certainly you don't want. It's hard to get him to do anything live because he didn't want to leave L.A. Like he didn't even like to leave his neighborhood. He's the biggest homebody in the whole world. (laughs) Man, if I lived in his neighborhood, I don't know that I want to leave either because the the amount and types of food that are available within like five blocks of his apartment are like insane so <laughs> there's another advantage to california man if you, if you like to eat oh yeah I've, I've been out there once if you go out there again i highly recommend going to um what's it called it's like it's it's not the death museum it's 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 like psychology um the museum of death or something it's a psych it's a scientology front oh. and you go through, and they blame uh, psychiatry on everything. I know a lot about Scientology. Oh, do you? I do. I, I lived in Clearwater, Florida, which is their sp- oh, yeah. quote-unquote spiritual headquarters. So, yeah, I talk to those people all the time. Yeah, okay. It's, it's, it's called Psychiatry, an Industry of Death. And it's <laughs> absolutely fascinating because you go through, and they blame – they literally blame everything on psychiatry and psychotropic drugs, like 9-11 – is blamed on psychiatry. Yeah. Do they do the e te- the e meters at the end? They didn't because uh, I think they're I think they're being a little more coy about it. And I, maybe they did, and I just told them no. I can't remember. It's been it's been since 2012. They used to in, in Clearwater. They would stand out and like like they own most of downtown Clearwater, which is was a big deal when we were living there because uh, it's it's eroded the tax base so badly. They would create all of these uh, these. Uh, fronts and businesses and buy a property and nobody knew that they were Scientology. And then all of a sudden, Oh, this is a Scientology property. You know, you know, we're taking this off the tax rolls, but yeah, it's, wow. a, that's some, that's some bizarre, creepy stuff. And, and I could tell you some, some stories. Uh, there was a, a church that 
was right next door to one of the big Scientology buildings. And they actually had a former Scientologist come in uh, to speak. They were doing like a series on cults. And knowing, <laughs> knowing that the Scientologists were, you know, pretty hardcore about stuff like that, they really kept it hush-hush on the down low that this guy was coming in. Mm-hmm. And somehow the Scientologists found out about it and were at the airport when he showed up. Oh, wow. You know, and it, it was like the only way they could have known is if they had somebody planted on the inside or they were using some type of, of monitoring or surveillance or something. It was just, yeah, there's that's some, that's some creepy stuff right there. If there's any Scientologists out there, I'm sorry if I'm offending you, but I'm not sorry. <laughs> we should have you on later just to talk about Scientology. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm not, I'm not an expert. Like I said, it's, it's just more of, of what, I've, what I witnessed and saw. And they, they would... If you go through downtown Clue, I'm not sure if it's like this now. It's been it's been quite a while since I've actually lived there. But you know, it used to be if you go down there at lunchtime, the the streets were just full, and they wore they all wore these little navy uniforms because L. Ron Hubbard was yeah this, yeah yeah the um, Sea Org yeah had the, the so that's all the Sea Org people are there in Clearwater, and they're all wearing these uniform, and they all have dead eyes. I mean, it's like it's really it's it's it has that weird oppressive feel like I had in D.C. with the cops. You know, it's like there's oh, some yeah. kind of thing here that's just. <laughs> I went to school in Lakeland, Florida. Oh, okay. And so we actually went over, uh, the last time I was in Lakeland was in probably 2012 as well, or tw- I don't know. But so yeah, when was, were you in school in Lakeland? I was there from 2000, late 2007 to about 20, around 20, 20, late 2011. And then... I lived in Lakeland for nine months in 2000... Five. My brother would have been there. You may have you may have seen my brother at some point. <laughs> Lakeland's not big, or at least it wasn't. It's not. It's also uh, they have a lot of meth. A lot of meth there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> meth wasn't really a big thing twenty years ago, but they're not as big as it is now. But yeah, Lakeland. How about that? Oh yeah. Well, Mike, I I I can't thank you enough for coming on and legitimizing us. <laughs> Yeah, if seriously. you're depending on me to legitimize you, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, you're welcome for my service, but uh, I don't know. Maybe you gotta, y'all need to step up your game a little bit. Really, we're sorry that you you did this. <laughs> really? So, so basically what's happened is I've just dropped my status. Yeah, huge amounts. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's going to take a while to recover from this one. I, you, you also notice that I dropped the retard word. In the- I, I did. I did. I noticed that. Tried, we try to say that at least once every sports ball episode. So, I- oh yeah, man, dude, I, I have. That's one of those things. Like, I, I try not to say them in public, but there are words that I hold on to from my youth that still make me laugh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just gotta, gotta say them in private now, <laughs> right? Or, or on a podcast, which isn't really private. I, um, I know that at some point, like if if I people say, "Oh, Mike, you should run for office," which like, no, I shouldn't. No, I don't want to. <laughs> I wouldn't do it because I, I have a theory that 90% of politicians are sociopaths. And oh, yeah. I'm not a sociopath, so I'm not qualified. But uh, yeah, people started digging around in stuff that I've said and, and not so much done. I'm not really done on a whole lot of stuff that's really bad, but I've certainly said a lot of stuff that'd be like, <laughs> I'd get unpersoned and banned from things. And Oh, yeah. No, I would too. I'm. I don't yep. really tie any of what I do 
to work. Like if you go on the internet anywhere and search my name, you will not see where I work. Yeah. I had to do that for a while too when I was working in actually worked in journalism. I worked for about five years for a TV station here in Lexington. And uh, I, I never referenced that I worked there for that very reason. Oh, Plus yeah. I'm supposed to be an unbiased journalist. <laughs> That's a whole nother. We could do an episode on journalism. That's that would be fun. Oh yeah, dude. Anytime you want to come back, we're 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 ready. This is enjoyable. More than happy to have you. Well, yeah. it was fun. I enjoyed it, even though awesome. I was you know, like I said, I was cranky and and tired. Now, of course, you know it's time for me to go to bed, and I haven't been able to watch any TV. Oh, I'm, you know, <laughs> I, I am so sorry. <laughs> but just think, you get to go to court tomorrow, and that'll make it all better. Oh yeah, I do. I get to. I don't have to do anything. I just can. I sit there and listen to the lawyers and every every hearing that we've had though. The city has said something. Well, I'd be like, "What the? Did he just?" <laughs> so I'm sure. I'm sure they'll. I'm sure they'll say something that's that's uh, asinine and absurd. And when this is all over, uh, things that I know that I've not made public will come out, and it'll be fun. So. Oh yeah, definitely. Let us know when that happens. Yeah, I'll just. I'll Good. just give you. I'll just give you a hint. Sometimes government agencies aren't real smart about how they redact things. Ooh. <laughs> I'll give you another hint. Magic marker does not cover up type. It's true. I, I know this for a fact. Yeah, so so I know more than they than they think that I know. <laughs> nice. Awesome. It's always good to have a one up on them. Yep. Oh yeah. Well we will uh we'll let you go to sleep and we'll we'll tie this this thing off in a knot. Is there anything you want us to uh tell people to to look up or Google or yeah, I'll which give you podcast all, I'll you're give proud you, of? I'll give, you, I'll give you all my things. Um, first thing I always tell people is if, if you're interested in uh, the, the political activism, the pragmatic approach, this whole nullification thing, visit the 10th Amendment Center, 10thamendmentcenter.com. Uh, you know, it was cool. We, did a, um, we had a meeting a few years ago with the uh, folks at the ACLU in, at the national level. And uh, we've, we've been working together on some privacy and, and surveillance stuff for a number of years. And when we were there, uh, Glenn Greenwald's lawyer came into one of the meetings and was just hanging out. And they were asking and trying to get a feel for what our organization was. And when they realized how small it was, he said, boy, you guys punch above your weight, which I thought <laughs> was really cool. Um, we, we do a lot. And I think as far as libertarian organizations go, I'll, I'll, put, I'll put us up against anybody in terms of actually doing practical uh, effective work that is doing something to undermine the uh, the state, especially the federal level of it. I'll put us against the LP any day. <laughs> I was about to say, so you're going to say you're better than the LP because I agree. Yeah. So <laughs> tenthamendmentcenter.com. Uh, I have my own website, michaelmahari.com, which is mostly my podcast, although I have all kinds of stuff on there. Um, and it's more oriented towards towards the 10th Amendment Center type work. I've got a Constitution 101. My Thoughts from a Hairy Head podcast is, is there. Uh, I've got some music that I produced on that website. So it's just a bunch of, bunch of stuff about me, a uh, book I've written, stuff like that. Uh, so that's a visit. And then if you are a believer, or if you're not a Christian and you're just interested in, in kind of looking at voluntarism and anarcho-capitalism or libertarian anarchism or whatever label we want to slap on it from a Christian perspective, godarchy.org uh, is is the place and, and the Godarchy podcast is there. I can't wait till you have me on that. 
We should do that. <laughs> Actually, I've got a cool one. Come, I've got two really good interviews coming up if they if they come together. I can't. I don't want to say who they are yet because I'm paranoid that they won't come through. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm excited about that podcast in in that website in that whole project because it really seems to have have there's a niche audience there that really is hungry for stuff from that perspective. And and like I said, I really want to be an anti-war voice and. Oh, yeah. I'd like to figure out how to how to broaden that and see if I could, you know, offend a whole bunch of uh, <laughs> a whole bunch of Christians. That would be fun. Oh, so yeah. I, I'm on Twitter at M Meharry Tenth, like the number one zero T H. Um I'm a lame Twitterer. <laughs> I'm a troll. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't I don't do much on Twitter. And then of course if if you're interested in the uh the economics and and business cycle, Federal Reserve stuff. You can go to shiftgold.com slash news and, and I write two two articles a day there that uh, generally relates to that and two articles a day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm 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 blessed to be able to write fast. Yeah. So it's one of the things you kind of learn in journalism school. So I write a lot. It my you know they have the little grammarly thing and it tells you how many words like at the month they'll give mm-hmm. you a report. My word count last month was hundred and six thousand. Oh wow! <laughs> I was like, "That's a lot of words." So yeah, Oof. <laughs> I'm I'm prolific. Now I'm not saying that 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 it, all of that is quality, but so you're saying you're essentially Walter Block? Yeah, except not. <laughs> yeah, not not nearly as smart. That dude is that dude is brilliant. I, I had lunch with him at, uh, a few months ago, and it was like, yeah, this dude's way smarter than I am. So. <laughs> I'm just a dumb journalist. I tell people that all the time. I don't really have any original ideas. I just repackage what other people say. Yeah, I just repackage what other people say and try to make a joke about it. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's good. You know, we need we need humor because there's a, there's a little bit of lack of that in in some of our circles sometimes. Yeah, saying, that will, oh, I'm so serious. And, yeah, and that's well, that's our whole actually, thing. Actually, <laughs> that's our whole thing. Is we and we've said this before, but one of like there was a I won't name the name because I don't. I have I have harsh feelings, but there was a show that I listened to for a while that was pretty news centered, and then once I stopped listening to that, I kind of fell off for a while. And so when we, we were me and Phil were talking about this, I was like, I want to do news, but I want to do it late night style. Yeah. And so that's our deal. And so hopefully we eventually get more than you know fifty or sixty people to listen to us. But you know. <laughs> Well, we'll get you there. know, here, here's here's some things that, that I've I've learned. Most podcasts don't have nearly as many listeners as they want you to think. Mm-hmm. Like like if you have if you're getting uh, over a hundred downloads, you've got a pretty successful podcast. To be honest, I mean, I, I think probably ninety percent of your podcasters aren't getting that many downloads. So if you're at sixty at this point, I, I think that's probably a, a pretty good start. That's like that's like reading. You know, most most books sell less than five hundred copies. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting because if you look at, talk about going off the rails, but this is an interesting thing to me, just the dynamics. Like if you share an article on Facebook, I've had some articles that have gotten like, you know, you look at the stats on Facebook and there'll be like 75 likes and, and 83 shares and, you know, you have these great, this great reach. It reached 10,000 people or something. And then you go look at the website to how many people actually click that article. 45. <laughs> wow. All the time, people do not read things. And then what's really extra frustrating is the people that are commenting and 
vehemently ridiculing what you wrote when they never read it. It's like, I know you didn't read this. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm saying that as a way of encouragement. Like the, the thoughts, my thoughts from a hairy head, I'm in like the two hundreds of episodes. I've been doing it for, I took a break for a while, but I've been doing it for like, I don't know, four or five years. And, and it very rarely goes over 150 downloads. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> we'll get if there. If I was trying to get rich or famous, I wouldn't be doing it in this venue. Right. <laughs> right. You know, I, 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 would sell, I would sell my soul and be a conservative commentator and, and probably could go work on Capitol Hill and make a bunch of money and screw an intern or something. I don't know. <laughs> I guess that's what they do. Ooh. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but... But then you wouldn't be on our show, and would it really be worth it? No, because this see, this is fun. <laughs> awesome. That's, oh, that's, that's about enough of this, right? <laughs> I mean, I could keep going, but, you know, it's almost, it's almost bedtime. It is. It's like two minutes to bedtime. I haven't taken a shower yet, so. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. I cannot, yeah, I can't stress again, it. Thanks again, Mike. Appreciate it. It was a pleasure. It was good. Awesome. We hope to have you back. I'll do it. Awesome. All right, and good Good luck to you tomorrow. Absolutely. Oh yeah, thanks. I'll, I'll do. A, I'll probably do a little video update when I get home. So S- sounds great. Okay, cool. We'll keep an eye All out of for your it. social media channels that you haven't been banned from, <laughs> <laughs> or you don't hate. Right. Yeah. Well. That day. All right. Good night, guys. Good night. Good night. All right, folks. Thank you for having a bit of fun with us and joining us for this interview. A very, very special thank you to Mike Maharry for coming on and dealing with us. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at ThisIsMLGA. If you'd like to send us an email, you can reach us at ThisIsMLGA at gmail.com. Hit us up, subscribe, and make sure to rate us on iTunes. It helps us grow and guarantees new episodes. Also, don't forget to check out the MLGA Network. We're a small and scrappy group of libertarians that share all the best liberty podcasts on MLGANetwork.com. You can find Mike's on there. Make sure to check that out, and we are we're still working on some new shows, so keep an eye out for those. We're happy to be here, and we're happy you're with us. Stay sane, everybody. I'm still here.